Good morning. Grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. If you don't have your own, you can grab the pew Bible in front of you and turn to 549. 549 will be the page there. And our handout today will just actually reflect the text of Luke 11 so that you can see that there as well. Let's pray as we uh, begin our time together in the Word. Heavenly Father, Lord, as, uh, as Scott just prayed moments ago, Lord, would you quiet our hearts now and turn our attention to the important things of life. We surely, Lord, have much in, in our past week that, uh, that was just the hustle and bustle of this world, um, just things that we had to do because it's just the, the nature of, of living and breathing in this world, Lord, but oftentimes we don't stop and consider the weightier matters of life. And that's what we want to do right now. And so, Lord, uh, today we, uh, our hearts are knit together with Stu and Elsie as we join them in praying for healing from cancer. We, uh, we know that this is a tough fight, but we also know, God, that you are the great physician. We've seen what you've done in the past with Marianne, and we believe that you can do that too with Elsie. And so, God, we commit this to you now in prayer, and we ask you, God, to bring healing and peace. And Lord, now we turn our attention to your word. We ask your spirit to guide our, our, our search for your truth, for truth that will uh, last the test of time and that will penetrate our hearts and cause life change by your spirit in us. Guide us now, we pray, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever uh, been in a mansion? Have you ever been in a mansion? Maybe you were invited to a party or, or to you know, someone's house and, and, and you, you came to the, the residence, you came to the address and you looked up and, and there was this huge house before you. You know, for, for most of us, I mean, we don't have huge houses. Some, some of us, apartments, houses, you know, maybe we've got a thousand square feet or maybe, maybe two thousand or maybe if we're lucky, three thousand square feet with, within which to reside. But when you see a mansion, you know what a mansion is. Just uh, a few days ago, we were at men's breakfast, and uh, Rene Cortez was talking to me about a mansion that he's been working on. He's a general contractor, and he was telling us about this home that he is redesigning. And we asked him, how big is the home? And he said, oh, it's not too big. It's, you know, it's uh, 14,000 square feet. 14,000 square feet, and, and Rene is, is redesigning every inch of that house. I asked him, I said, uh, so the people, you know, who, who are, who are doing this remodel, they're, they're living there, of course, right? And he says, no. He says, there wasn't any room. (laughs) They're literally gutting the whole 14,000 square foot mansion and redesigning it. How, how far are you along, Rene? 80% done. Can we come over for a party when it's done? We would all like to come. We'd all like to see what that looks like. We all know what a mansion is when we see it. The thing about a mansion is that they're always, they're always pristine. You walk inside, they're neat, they're clean, the floors are swept and shine, there, there, there's no dust anywhere. It's, it's, it's immaculate because it's a mansion. But the interesting thing about a mansion too as is often the case, I asked Renee, I said, uh, how many people live there? 
Renee, how many people? Three. Three people lived in this mansion of 14,000 square feet. And it's interesting, it's often the case, that in an immaculately built, beautifully cleansed and swept and perfectly in ordered mansion, it is often the case that it's empty. It's just empty. It's devoid of life. Devoid of people. Maybe three. The title of this message is Swept and Clean but Empty Inside. Swept and Clean but Empty Inside. This story today in Luke, as we go through this gospel, is about people who respond to God in such a way that on the outside, it looks like their life is, is orderly, it's clean, it's, it's ready. But the people who respond to God, trying all that they can to make the outside look good, but on the inside, they're nothing but empty. Empty tombs, empty vessels. They've done everything on the outside, but when you look at the core, there's nothing there that resembles a sensitivity to God. Stand with me, if you're able, and look at Luke. Uh, Let's read together Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14. Luke chapter 11, beginning in verse 14, and you'll notice the reference to the clean but empty house at the very end of this text. Luke 11, verse 14. And he, that is Jesus, was casting out a demon. And it was mute, or the demon caused the man to be mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute man spoke. And the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, Oh, he, Jesus, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others testing Jesus, sought from him a sign from heaven. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house falls. Verse 18. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace, they're at rest. But when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me and he who does not gather with me scatters. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds the house swept and put in order. And then he goes 
and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there and the last state of the man is worse than the first. You may be seated. Wow, that's a strange portion of scripture, isn't it? I hope that you think it's strange because, uh, you know, as I was studying it this week, I, I was just... Uh, uh, really befuddled by um, some of the parables that Jesus was speaking of here, some of the illustrations that he was using, some of the references to unclean and evil spirits and the, and the powers of, uh, of wickedness. These are mysterious texts that we're into in Luke here. Let's make some sense of them together if we can. Verse 14. All right, this is straightforward. And he, Jesus, was casting out a demon. We've seen this before in Luke. And it was mute, that is to say the demon that was possessing this man was causing the man to be mute. And so it was when the demon had gone out that the mute man spoke and the multitudes marveled. Verse 15, but some of them said, Jesus casts out demons by Beelzebub or Beelzebul the ruler of the demons. Others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. So here we have Jesus in another encounter uh, with demonic possession. Certainly not the first time this has happened in the Gospels. Um, He he does this time and time and time again. Um, We don't see it in our culture as much today as as we've said so before, at least in the 21st century Western world. Um, But it is present in this world today. It is present here in this nation. It is certainly present when you leave this nation and go to places like Haiti and other uh, other nations in which uh, demonic possession is ever before you because there are many people who deal with it. Um, one trip to Haiti will make you a believer in modern-day demonic possession. Nevertheless, Jesus is uh, encountering this demon, causing the man to be mute, and very quickly here, there's, no, there's not a lot of uh, uh, pause, but rather quickly, Luke says, and boom, the demon went out, and the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. Just real fast. Not a, not a long description of the miracle. The long description is not the miracle, it's the reaction of the people and Jesus' response to them. Take a look. But some of them said, verse 15, oh, this Jesus, he casts out demons by Beelzebub or Beelzebul. Uh, some of your Bibles have Beelzebub. Others of your Bibles read Beelzebul with an L at the end. Uh, that is simply because of, of a difference in biblical manuscripts. They found some manuscripts with an L and then some manuscripts with a B. I'm speaking about the English letter there, of course. And, uh, and they were trying to make judgments as to what name it was that, uh, that Luke was uh, writing. In what is most interesting, though, about the, these two names is that they both uh, have references to the Old Testament. If you look at 2 Kings chapter 1, you will find uh, Beelzebub referenced there as uh, the god of Ekron, uh, a manifestation of the ancient pagan god Baal, 
that you've uh, that you've read about so many times in your Old Testament Bible stories as a kid. Our, our children are often lear- learning about uh, the the pagan uh, god, uh, the, the idolatrous god of the Philistines, Baal or Baal. Baal, hearkening back to the Philistine god, um, he was also known as Baal Zebul, which means Lord of the demons. But that was what he was known by in among the Philistines. They would say he is Baal Zebul, ruler of the demons. But see, the Hebrews, the Jews, they didn't like the idea of Baal Zebul as, as the one true God. They did not believe him to be a God. They believed him to be an idolatrous and, and pagan uh, demon. And so what the Hebrew, what the Jews did is they took Baal Zebul and they changed it to Baal Zebub. And by adding that one letter at the end, they changed it from Lord of the Demons, Baal Zebul, to Lord of the Flies, Baal Zebub. Lord of the Flies. It was a derogatory term used by the Jews to ridicule and mock the God of the Philistines. And so, some of the manuscripts here are referring then to Baal Zebul, meaning by his real name, or Baal Zebub, uh, meaning his derogatory name used by the Jews. In any event, by the time of Jesus, the name of this pagan Philistine god came to be associated with the devil himself, Satan himself who is, of course, the ruler of the demons. And so when the Jews would refer to Baalzebub or Baalzebul, they were often referring, they were very much referring to Satan himself. Some of them, verse 15, said, Jesus casts out demons by by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan is what they were saying. Others testing Jesus, verse 16, sought from him a sign from heaven. <laughs> I'm always, I mean, you should stop and you should really laugh right there, right? Verse 16. Others testing Jesus sought a sign from heaven as if the exorcism of a demon from a mute man was not a sign from heaven. The callousness of their hearts was ever before them. But Jesus, verse 17, continuing on now, knowing their thoughts, said to them, and he's responding now to their charges against him, to their charge that they're saying, Jesus, you do this by the power of Satan. And here's his response to that, verse 17. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and a house divided against a house falls if satan also is divided against himself how will his kingdom stand i say this to you i ask this of you because you say i cast out demons by beelzebub jesus is responding to the charge that he uses the power of satan to cast out demons and he says that charge is absurd on its face Why? Because Satan is not in the business of healing. Satan is not in the business of exorcism. Satan is not in the business of taking his minions out of people 
so that they can, uh, can, can afflict them no more. No, he's in the business of putting them into people so that they can harass them and haunt them and possess them and control them. Jesus says, your theory about me is absurd on its face. And he goes on, verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, he says, let's, let's grant that for just a moment. Let's grant your absurd theory that I'm, that I'm doing this in the power of Satan. If I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? The sons there. Um, a difficult uh, reference to pinpoint who Jesus is talking about. There's really two, two theories. Uh, one theory is that Jesus is saying, by whom do the Jewish exorcists of the day cast out demons? By whose power do the, do the Jewish itinerant preachers of the day cast out demons? Do they do it by Satan? Or do they do it by the power of God? And the Pharisees kind of tight-lipped. A second option would be, and, and this is actually the option that I lean toward, and I'll tell you why in a moment. A second option would be, by whom do your sons, and, he's, and he's, he's speaking there, by the way, to the multitudes, but his disciples are sitting right there. His disciples are right there. And if we go back in the previous chapters in Luke, we see the disciples going out and doing what? Casting out demons. And so it's possible here that Jesus is stopping and saying, if I cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, verse uh, 19, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Look at these men. Look at these 12. By whom are they casting them out? Because if you're attributing this to me, what are you going to say about them? Because you saw them go out. You saw them go out throughout this entire land. And that's all they did was cast out demons. And preach the gospel of peace. He says, Jesus is inviting them to critique all of the 12 disciples and all of the ministry that they did throughout the land just recently. He says, are you going to attribute all of this to Satan? And the reason why I lean toward the sons being the disciples rather than just random Jewish exorcists is because of the next statement. Look at the last statement right there in verse 19. It says, therefore they will be your judges. What is referenced about the 12 disciples uh, uh, in the kingdom of God? That they will sit on 12 thrones and judge the house of Israel? How interesting is that? Jesus is pointing to the 12 and saying, well, are you going to say that these guys are doing it by Satan's power too? I don't see you making that motion yet because, you, because everyone here in all the land saw what they did when they went out and cast out thousands of, of demons by the power of God. He says, but these guys right here, they will be your judges one day. They will literally judge you. They will literally be over you. They will have authority over you because of the callousness of your hearts. And he was pointing to these 12, saying these 12, these fishermen, these tax collectors, these ragamuffins, these poor men will have authority over you one day for this suggestion. The suggestion that, that we do this by Satan's power. He goes on to say in verse 20, but if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
He's saying there's only two options here. It's either by Satan's power or by the hand of God, by the finger of God. And if it is the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you and you've looked at it, you've, you've looked at the glory of God and you've attributed it to Satan. In uh, Matthew and in Mark, this is where the gospel writers will pivot and speak to uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin, which I believe is attributing the works of God to Satan. Luke does not do that here. He, uh, he takes a different course. He continues on with uh, the story to another parable here in just a moment. But Jesus, in, in one fell swoop, suggests that their theory is absurd, that Satan would not cast out demons. That's not what Satan does. It's absurd, their theory. Secondly, it's not consistent, because they're not making that accusation of the 12 disciples or of other Jewish itinerant preachers who go out exercising uh, demons from people. He says, why are you only focusing on me here? It's not consistent. It's, a, it's an argument of convenience. Their theory is false. The finger of God is at work in Christ. Jesus is not Beelzebub. Jesus is not the devil. Jesus is stronger than Satan. And he has come to reclaim what Satan has taken. He has come to reclaim what Satan has taken. Look at verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Jesus is the stronger man. He's come upon a strong man. He's come upon Satan. He's come upon the one who is wreaking havoc in Jewish society. Satan and his minions, the demons, they're entering into people's lives, possessing them, afflicting them, harming them, causing great travesty in them, sin, wickedness, death, physical affliction, on and on and on. And Satan, a strong man in that day and age, but Jesus is stronger and he enters into the situation. Satan, fully armed with his minions of demons, guarding his own palace, guarding his earthly kingdom. His goods are at rest, but then a stronger man comes, and that stronger man is Christ. And when he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from Satan all of his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Satan's spoils was that man who was demon-possessed. Satan's spoils is the sin and wickedness and death and affliction, emotional, physical affliction that is happening all throughout this world. Those are Satan's spoils. And Jesus has come to disrupt that. To take what Satan has claimed and to reclaim it. So make a choice, Pharisees, Jesus is saying. You've witnessed the power of God. It's been right before your eyes. It's either the kingdom of God or it's Satan. Make a choice. Either you're with me or you're with Satan. You can't remain neutral. He who is not with me is against me. We might wonder, well, golly, how could they, how could they deny what Jesus had done? 
How could they not believe him? How could they be so blind when, when Jesus had, right before their very eyes, cast out a demon from this man? Questions like these are perhaps why Jesus ends his teaching here in Luke 11 with the following parable about the relentless work of Satan and his demons. And this is where I want to spend the bulk of, our, of the remainder of our time. Verses 24, 25, and 26. Here's where it gets, I mean, here's where uh, I really, um, I got excited about this because I had not studied this passage um, in quite some time. And uh, it just, it welled up excitement in me as I read through this, this parable. And it's a hard one. It's a difficult one to understand. Verse 24. Jesus gives one last parable before the Pharisees who are calloused and hard and before the multitudes who are watching and witnessing all of this. And he says this in verse 24. He says, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry, the spirit goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. And so he says to himself, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds the house is swept and put in order. But then the unclean spirit goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. This is a fascinating parable about the life and the nature of demons. When's the last time you, uh, you stopped and said, I'm going to think about the life and nature of demons today? Just it's not something that comes to our minds, is it? We, don't, we, don't think of, we really don't even think of them as being real. We might have a concept, oh, Satan, okay, yeah, I understand. He's, he's real. There's an enemy out there. But when we think of demons, unclean spirits, I think we sometimes just fool ourselves and, and into not thinking that these are real, actual, spiritual beings that live in this world. That are amidst us, around us, come near us, at times afflict us, pester us, bother us, tempt us, depress us, discourage us, harm us, ruin us. This is a parable about the life and nature of demons and about man's response to them. And it's interesting in verse 24, when Jesus addresses, he, he, at the onset of this parable, he says, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, that is to say, when, when, when a man receives relief, when, when a possessed man has a demon cast out from him, that demon goes through dry places. 
seeking rest and finding none. Jesus is suggesting there that demons uh, do not enjoy being displaced. Demons are not uh, nomadic by nature. They like to settle in and reside in and among people. And when an unclean spirit goes out of a man or is exercised, he goes out through he goes through dry places, which is to say a, a desert, an unfulfilling period of existence. When a demon is cast out, when a demon is pushed out, flushed out, he goes through deserted places, a deserted experience of life. We know what that's like. We know what a deserted experience of life is, is like when, when life is dry and hard, dull, difficult, strained, when there's thirst in us and there's no quenching. We know what that's like in our lives. Jesus is making that point about a demon's existence when he leaves what he is used to. He goes through dry places when he leaves a man. He looks for rest, but he doesn't find it because he's not nomadic by nature. And so, having roamed about, he thinks to himself, I know what I'll do. I know where I was content. I know where I found fulfillment. I will return to my house from which I came. I will go back to the man that I afflicted for so many years. The demon is motivated, the unclean spirit is motivated to do that because they are at rest, at peace, so to speak. When they are in, on, or around human beings, they derive a perverse kind of happiness from afflicting and haunting and possessing men and women and children. That is their livelihood. That is their hobby. It is their aim all the day long. And we don't think about that in the 21st century Western scientific materialistic world. That demons, which exist today in countless number, they are limited in scope, but seemingly in countless number, demons which are existent today, they have goals and aims, they have something that makes them perversely content, and it is you, it is you who make them feel that way. It is you they pursue. It is me they pursue. It is human beings that are their hobby, their goal, their purpose in life. And here we have a story of one unclean spirit in particular in verse 24. He's been cast out of a man and he goes out of course, he finds no rest because he's outside now of his purpose. 
And outside of the man, the demon, he loses his identity and he decides to come back. And he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And so he returns to the man. But when he comes back, he notices something about the man. He, when he comes, he finds it, verse 25, swept and put in order. The man's life, his house, so to speak, his life, it, it, it's swept. It's put in order. Last week, uh, Pastor Tom gave an excellent, excellent message on uh, the story of Mary and Martha. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a very brief story at the, at the tail end of Luke 10. And here we are not, not far thereafter in Luke 11. And in the tail end of Luke 10, uh, we see there the story of Mary and Martha where Martha opens up her home. Her home, take note. She opens up her home and, uh, and she's there to host Jesus. She is there to welcome in the Son of God. And yet, as she prepares for Jesus' coming and as he enters the home, um, Martha is seen doing housework. Um, she's, she's sweeping. She's cleaning. She's preparing food. She's getting everything in order. She's, she's making sure that everything is, the T's are crossed, the I's are dotted. She wants the home to be immaculate, perfect, clean, swept, orderly. Martha is scurrying around all afternoon, preparing the house, preparing the food, making sure everything was perfect. It's perhaps not ironic that the parable we now read, a chapter later, given not long after Jesus' interaction with Mary and Martha, is now placed in the Gospel of Luke. In Luke 10, Mary and Martha, a home that was swept and put in order, Jesus looked upon it and said, Martha, this is not, this is not what I've asked of you. Jesus, in the end of Luke 10, he commends Mary for sitting at the feet of Christ. And he looks upon Martha and says, Martha, 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 what, what are you doing? You're cleaning, you're sweeping, you're ordering, but the house is empty. Your heart. Where's your heart? In Luke 10, a home that is swept and put in order is not good enough. In Luke 11, what we should expect is that the home that the demon finds that is swept and put in order and yet it's not going to be good enough. Jesus is looking for more. The more that he's looking for are eyes and ears that are centered on him. A heart that is attuned to him. In Luke 10, Martha was far from the Lord. She was jealous. She was bitter toward her sister Mary. She was serving others, ministering to others and to Jesus, but her heart was simply distracted and fraught with the cares of the world. The house was swept, put in order, but it was empty. In Luke 11, a man temporarily receives relief from demon possession. And in response to that great spiritual blessing, he attempts, I say attempts, to put his life back together. And when that same demon tries to haunt him again, 
the demon finds that, in fact, the man has made an attempt to put his life together. The demon notices that the man has swept things up a bit, has cleaned things up a bit. The man's life, in a sense, is put in order. But although things looked good on the outside, the truth was that this man, this man who had received relief, the demon had gone out, had been cast out, this man who had received relief, the truth is is that he did very little to turn his eyes and ears back to God. He had done some cleaning, but not nearly enough. And he had certainly not centered his home, his life, on the Lord. And so when the demon returned and came with others with him, came in greater force, the time, this time having brought seven others with him, the man quickly fell again and succumbed again to evil and to wickedness. Only this time, his fate was far worse than the first time. This time, the man's fall into temptation and into sin and into demon possession was deep and it was grave. You might be thinking, what is Jesus' point here? What is he... What did the man have to do? It, it looked like he was trying to clean things up. And yet, the man falls, in verse 26, and, and falls so much greater than he had fallen the first time. Jesus, what are you saying? I think Jesus is suggesting to the multitudes certainly to the Pharisees, though they're hard of hearing, that Satan and evil are hard at work in this world. They tempt us daily. They lure us into sin and wickedness. They try to gain power and control of your life. And, every, and that every single one of you are the objects of their attack. Every single one of us have at times fallen prey to their craftiness. They're masters of making sin look good. And yet sin, though it looks good, is in fact a daily entanglement. Something that daily chokes us and ruins us. Though some of us keep returning to that which harms us. We fight this battle daily because we're sinners. But that is not all, all that we are. Jesus came to break the power of sin and evil. And He has given us divine aid, spiritual tools that are meant to keep us walking in what is good and true and holy and right. He's given us tools, divine aid, things like the church, things like the Word, Things like the Spirit of God who lives in you who believe. And He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. Amen? And there are moments though, there are moments, and I've experienced them myself, there are moments when the Spirit of God does something magnificent. The aid that we have, the church, the Word, the Spirit, as we go through this life of sin and entanglement, 
and difficulty, there are moments, beautiful moments, where God decides to intervene. He just jumps right in. He sees you struggling. He sees you entangled and choking. And there are moments where God says, you know what, enough is enough right now. I am entering in to the situation. I am intervening right now. There are moments where the Spirit of God says, that's enough. And He walks in. And He rushes in to defend us, to protect us from sin and evil. There are moments when when God unilaterally refuses to let the enemy advance any further. When He unilaterally stops our temptation and our sin When the demons that are trying to haunt us, He forcibly removes from us. And we see as much in verse 24. When when a demon goes out, when he is cast out, he goes through dry places. That's the hand of God intervening unilaterally and saying, enough is enough right now. You're going to have a moment of relief. And we experience relief. Temporary relief from that which has haunted us and ruined us in the past. And for a time, there's a brief respite. There's a small rest for your soul as the kingdom of God has come to the rescue of your heart and of your mind. But it's in those moments where God comes in and says, enough is enough right now. I'm going to give you a time of rest where temptation and sin are at bay in your life. It's in that moment, the moment of temporary relief, that moment of of temporal spiritual rescue, it's in that moment that Jesus is wondering, is is he going to change his life now? Is she going to do what is necessary now to maintain this freedom? It's at that moment when God unilaterally intervenes to help us that He wonders aloud, will my child do what it takes to keep the gift I've just given them? Will they seek out continued counsel from my word and from trusted friends in the church? Will my child remove himself or herself from situations and environments in which they previously found themselves sinning again and again and again? Will they pray earnestly daily for continued help thanking me with gratitude for their newfound freedom that they've received? Or will they take this gift lightly? Will they take my gift of relief from temptation and evil and simply forget about the freedom and the life that it has afforded them? Will they take my gift and neglect it? Will they fail to make the humble and the wise spiritual choices that are necessary to maintain this freedom from sin? 
Will they fail to use the divine tools I've given them? The, the church, the word, the Holy Spirit. Will they continue to live by their own strength, thinking they can sweep and put their house in order on their own? Friends, when the, when the power of God comes upon you, when you are blessed with relief, temporary relief from temptation, from a desire for evil and sin, when you receive that unilateral intervention of God, when that happens, Jesus wants to know how are you going to react Because you are his child, those of you who have trusted Christ by faith, because you are his child, he wants to intervene and take away your temptation and your sin. He wants to intervene because he is a loving father. He wants to take away your laziness. He wants to take away your drunkenness. He wants to take away your addiction to pornography to drugs, to pharmaceuticals. He wants to take away your covetous spirit. He wants to take away your lust and your quest for power. He wants to take away your pride and your gluttony and your bitterness and your hatred. He wants to take it away because you are his child. And when he decides to intervene and take it away for a moment, when he rips from you the thing that has perverted and ruined you, and restores to you the joy of your salvation. When you see again with new eyes, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. This is how I've wanted to live. This is the freedom I've wanted to have. When he does that, what will you do to maintain the gift? Because the devil is not done. Satan is a relentless loser. He is losing, but he is relentlessly losing. He never stops fighting. Verse 24, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest, finding none. He says, I'll go back. I'll go back. Relentless. I'll go back to where I was at home. I remember that guy. I remember what I could do to him. I remember how I could persuade him. I remember the feeling that I would get when I would get him to do that. Ah. Oh gave him purpose, gave that demon a sense of perverse happiness, and so he wanted to go back to that man and ruin him again. Satan is a relentless, relentless loser. He wants to own you. And like stalkers, demons watch you, they study you, they look for your areas of weakness, which ironically are areas that you think you're strong in. When he comes, when the demon comes, verse 25, he finds it swept and put in order, which is to say the man thought that his home, that his life was swept and clean. He thought he was strong. He thought he was secure. What he thought was swept and put in order was actually empty. It was never filled with the presence and the truth of God. It was nothing but a man-made effort to maintain the gift of temporal spiritual relief.
and Beelzebub and the demons. They see it for what it is and they make plans and they make calculations and they know, they know that they're limited in number and they know that they're limited in power and so they watch you and they continually assess you and they ask questions. How many of us will it take? How, mu- how much temptation will it take? How much bait will it take? How much enticement will it take? And then they agree on a scheme. And then they perceive the right moment. And when that man or woman, living in their own strength, thinking that their house is swept and put in order, and suddenly the time comes, verse 26, and he goes, the demon goes, having made the plans, he's assessed you. He's watched you. Beelzebub and the demons have calculated. They've got an algorithm, and it's about you. And then he goes and he says, it'll take seven. It'll take seven more. And he takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter the man and they dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. Peter says, your adversary, the devil, walks around, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Calculation. Calculation. You are constantly under assessment by the enemy. But then there are some, there are some whom Beelzebub and the demons, whom Satan and the demons look upon, they begin their calculation, they begin their plans, and they look upon them and they begin to assess them and they see something different in them. They see a man or a woman who is refusing to live in their own strength. They see, a man, they see a man or woman who is refusing to, by their own power, live and walk in this world. They see a man or woman who looks a lot like what James says in chapter 4, verse 6. That God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the sight of God, and he will lift you up. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Calculation all over Luke. All over Luke 11. Calculation. Trying to pick off who who can we get. How many will it take? How much bait will it take? And yet there are some who don't walk by their own strength but walk in the humility of the Lord dependent upon his word ever participating 
and vibrantly a part of His church and daily morning, noon, and night considering His Spirit within you. James says, when you have that kind of a submissive spirit to the Lord and you resist the devil, he will flee from you. He will assess you and say, you know, I, I don't think we can get him. I don't think we can get her right now. She's, she's, she is walking with God. Let's, let's go elsewhere. But this is daily. This is hourly. This is minute by minute. You can receive freedom from sin and temptation. You can receive the freedom that you're looking for to walk in truth and righteousness. Experience the joy of the Lord. But it's going to take minute by minute humility and dependence upon God. Would that we not be the man who by our own strength sweeps and cleans the house while it's empty and void inside, would we be the one who leans wholly on the power of God that when the devil looks and calculates about us, he says, let's move on to someone who's weaker. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we want to grow in truth and in holiness and in righteousness. And God, we're sinners, and we know it. We struggle daily. We're tempted daily, God. And it's hard, and sometimes we have this defeatist attitude that all we are is but a sinner. And Lord, we know, we've read now, how much Satan, Beelzebub, and his demons, how much, how attuned they are to us. We are the... We are the center of their universe. They are so focused on us, Lord. We are their prey. And yet, God, you have shown a way of escape. You have shown that we can be above calculation, above the enemy's schemes, if we would not walk in our own strength, but be humble before you bowing our knees before you, ever lifting up our hands and saying, God, I need you. I need you. I need your church. I need your word. I need your spirit. I need all the tools, all of them, Lord. Help me. Help me. God, let us have that posture before you. And then, God, would you take that devil and cast him far away from us? We want freedom. We can't wait for freedom on the last day, but we want tastes of it now. God, give us that freedom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.